Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So you might have noticed, if you were watching the bulletin, that that hymn was not the one that I had in the hymnal or in the bulletin from last week that we were going to sing this Sunday. Uh, and and the, the hymn I had assigned was uh, the one that we would normally sing on this Sunday, uh, O Sons and Daughters of the King. And the, the chief stanza of that hymn, the way it's written, I think is the eighth stanza. Right? How blessed are they who have not seen, and yet whose faith has constant been, for they eternal life shall win. And as I was meditating on that, I was realizing that the way that that's written, what it's saying is that the ones who win eternal life are the ones who have constant faith. And to say that none of us really have constant faith and that we aren't saved because of the constancy of our faith, but because of what Christ has, has done for us. Um, and so we had in the, in the hymn that we sang that, that phrase, doubtings hence, which hence using the, the old English meaning of that, go away, right? Doubtings be gone because Jesus is out of the grave, right? That this, this is our confidence that everything is based on this. Um, and so I just wanted to, to share that as well. Um, and now, now sort of to the sermon proper. The disciples have locked themselves away. They're hiding in fear, well, for all sorts of reasons. Perhaps because they're afraid of what the Jews might do to them. Perhaps they just didn't know what to do next. All they know is that Jesus is dead and they have no hope. Women have come to them and announced the resurrection. Peter and John have witnessed the empty tomb, but none of the disciples have seen Jesus. Who knows what thoughts might occupy their minds? What, as we talked about in Bible study this morning, what sort of even a cacophony of conversation is going on among them as they're trying to figure out what in the world has just happened, what is going on here. And then suddenly, Jesus himself stands in their midst. The locked doors couldn't keep him out. And Jesus speaks. He says, peace be with you, showing them his hands and his side. This Jesus is the crucified one. His saving work has accomplished their redemption. And he, now he speaks the word that delivers his work to them. He absolves them of their fear, forgiving them of all their sins. For in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, God's hostility with man has ended, and order is now restored. Therefore, the disciples are glad when they see the Lord. With this word, his disciples can now serve him with a free and joyful conscience. And thus, having been freed of their sins, they are now sent by Jesus to bring this same word into all the world. So Jesus commissions his apostles, ordaining them for this task, and gives them the Holy Spirit. 
Because Jesus died for all, the Lord's pastors and apostles are now sent into all the world. He sends them out with the same word that he has given them. For you notice what he says, as the Father has sent me, so also I send you. In other words, they are authorized to preach exactly what Christ himself preached. So the first thing that we observe is that the pastors of the Lord's church are under orders. They aren't sent forth with their own word, but with the word of Jesus, to deliver his words and promises to all who would hear them. And what is this word? Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Our catechism calls this institution the office of the keys. Jesus' death and resurrection is for the forgiveness of sins. But that death and resurrection happened 2,000 years ago. So it's by this office of the keys that that word is now brought to us here in time. So to see how this works, let's consider an analogy. It's an adaptation of something I've heard from a number of different pastors. But imagine that you have been arrested for a crime, and now you are locked up in jail. You await the trial that will determine your guilt or innocence, and you have a defense attorney arguing on your behalf. In fact, he's such a good defense attorney that he doesn't even want you in the courtroom. Because more than a simple defense attorney, your advocate is none other than Christ Jesus himself. And yet, he's not arguing for your innocence. Instead, he's setting before the judge his own righteousness and innocence and his shed blood on your behalf. He's asking the judge to accept his crucifixion and sacrifice as the payment for all of your sins. The judge is God the Father. And based on the defense offered by Jesus, the Lord declares you innocent. You get to go free. But you weren't there for the trial. You're still in your jail cell. You don't know about the judge's ruling. And so now another official is necessary, the bailiff. He has to go from the courthouse to your jail cell with a key. That's his job. But things can go wrong in a few ways at this point. And so what if instead of going to release you, the bailiff decides that now would be a really good time to take a lunch break? Or what if he comes to your jail cell and he says, you know, I'm really sorry. I know the judge said that I was supposed to release you, but I know what you've really done. And you need to stay locked up because I've decided that you shouldn't be free. But the bailiff isn't authorized to do any of these things. The bailiff is authorized to do one thing and one thing only according to this scenario. He is to use his key to open the door of your cell and to say, I release you. Now you and your cell could respond a couple of different ways. You could say, well, you're not the judge. You don't have the authority to release me. I'm going to stay here. 
Or maybe you could completely ignore his word because you don't even think you're in prison at all. You've convinced yourself that this is a five-star hotel and you're going to live here for the rest of your life. Or you could hear his word and believe it and rejoice and walk out of your cell. And so do you see how all of this works? The bailiff isn't really the one releasing you. He doesn't have the authority. He's only doing what he has been authorized to do. And if he doesn't do as the judge has authorized, then he has failed in his duty, and he is to be removed from office. Now we know that this bailiff, who was only authorized to do what the judge says, the bailiff is an illustration of our Lord's church who speaks only on the authority of the Lord Jesus. In fact, the whole church, all Christians are given the authority to deliver this verdict, not to make it, but to deliver it. And so the church also calls pastors to exercise this authority publicly, to tell God's people what the Lord has authorized him to say. And so all this means that the word the pastor speaks on behalf of Christ, when he says what is faithful to Christ, it's really just Christ's word. And so often when your pastor speaks this word, he will say that this word is spoken in the stead and by the command of his Lord Jesus. It's what Jesus has authorized him to say. So that even though it comes from the mouth of the sinful man, what he speaks is really God's verdict. And what God says is true. Your feelings don't determine whether his word is true or not. And now you know that this verdict can go one of two ways. Either you're innocent or you're guilty. And so that's why Jesus in this text gives his church two keys. One to release the sinner from his sins and open heaven to him. And one to bind the sinner to his sins and to close and lock the door to heaven. <coughs> Sorry. The central reality of the church's work means that the church will speak about sins. But these keys are given in a good order. For the binding key does not exist for its own sake. It is given so that you would see the danger of your sins and be driven to the desire, be driven to desire the forgiveness of your sins. And so its purpose serves that of the loosing key. And so we'll, we'll start then with the binding key. If the judge has ruled that the defendant is to stay locked up, then the bailiff has to make sure that this verdict is delivered. So now when you see the bailiff coming from the judge, he comes and he rattles the door and checks the handle and makes sure that it's still locked. And so maybe you sit in your cell and you glare at him. You think he's being kind of mean, that a nice bailiff would open the door and let you out. But a bailiff that doesn't act according to the judge's verdict is unfaithful. The bailiff doesn't have the authority to determine by his arbitrary whims whether he will decide to show mercy and forgiveness today. He is under orders. 
So when the bailiff is only authorized to use, so that the bailiff is only authorized to use the binding key, when the judge himself would also withhold forgiveness. And now, in, in some sense, I'm kind of getting away from the, the text before us and kind of dealing with more of the aspects described in Matthew 18, but it, it ties so tightly into what we're talking about here. And so let's say that you've perhaps seen a fellow member of your church family that has chosen to do something against Christ. Maybe you hear him speaking false doctrine or, or you see him acting against God's word. And notice, by the way, that you don't go digging into your neighbor's life to try to find all of these things, but you've witnessed things that go directly against God's word. And so now, as, as a Christian and a fellow member of the family of our Savior, you come along that, alongside that person in a gentle way, and you call him to repentance. And when he repents, you absolve him. You tell him that Christ has died for his sin, and God forgives him. And if that sin was against you, then you also forgive him in the name of Christ. This is something that happens probably most often in individual families. Sin is noticed, addressed, and forgiven. And most of the time, your pastors never hear about it, nor do they need to even know these details. This is good and pleasing that this forgiveness is given out because God our Savior wants all men to repent and to trust in Christ for forgiveness. But sometimes there isn't repentance. Sometimes others are sought to call the one in error to repentance. Sometimes even the matter becomes so public that now your pastors know about it. At that time, it usually means the pastor is speaking to the impenitent person. And if he again refuses to repent, then the job of the pastor is to make sure that such a person has his sins bound to him and he is not to be admitted to the Lord's Supper. Probably the elders, too, are involved in calling that person to repentance. Maybe there are letters and phone calls. And other individual Christians, too, want to continue to go to that person and to warn him. And so ultimately, also, the whole congregation together may need to join the pastor's voice in exercising this binding key. This is all to be done out of love, to warn the impenitent one of the danger of his sin, to announce to him publicly that he has forsaken Christ and the Lord's church. It's a warning and a pleading for repentance and faith. Because there is no remission of sins to be found in all the world except in the word of Jesus. So the one who is rejecting the word of Jesus is rejecting his forgiveness. And so we call this whole process excommunication. Now, you might have guessed this already, but none of this is really very fun for your pastor to talk about. And don't think that he's eager or happy to have to use this binding key. In fact, I don't really like this key any more than you do. But the church is obligated to do this. Your pastors are under orders. We are bailiffs 
in the Lord's church. So we know then that this key is given to the, to the church by Christ himself. And we also know that Christ only gives what is good. And so also we must confess that this binding key is good. For the Lord gives this key to his church because this practice is what is best for the impenitent. It's the loving thing to do. Now, sometimes, sadly, those who are excommunicated never return. And we mourn their departure and the gifts of Christ that they have lost. But sometimes, also, they change their mind. Sometimes they return, they repent, and come back to the Lord's church and his gifts. And so it is out of love and desire for one to return that we exercise this key. And that brings us to an aspect of our gospel reading today, because notice what happened with Thomas. Jesus rebukes Thomas for his sin. Jesus called Thomas an unbeliever and called him to faith. And then Thomas, by the power of the Holy Spirit, repents. And he makes the good confession and says, My Lord and my God. This is where Jesus wants Thomas and his whole church, under the authority of the loosing key. And Jesus brings us his word to keep us there. And this being under the loosing key isn't a one-time thing. That first Easter day, Jesus greets his disciples with the word of peace, with the absolution that all their sins are forgiven. And then, eight days later, Thomas has been with has been added to their number. And yet Jesus now speaks the same word of peace to the eleven. Again, he forgives them all their sin. And you can see this in the Greek. He's not using the singular you here as though only Thomas is now being absolved. But he's speaking in the plural. He is giving forgiveness to all the disciples. And so it's not that forgiveness runs out and we need to get recharged and refilled. It's that Christ himself is handing over this whole thing over and over and over. The Lord's absolution is repetitive. For it is under this key that Christians live. Thomas had rejected Jesus. He explicitly and defiantly said that he would never believe. And yet to him, the Lord Jesus comes with words of peace. And so it is also for you. Your Lord daily and continually forgives you all your sins. And in this you see his patience and the steadfast goodness of Jesus who won't give up in the face of obstinate unbelief. And not only does Christ give his absolution repeatedly, his absolution forgives all your sins. In fact, even and perhaps especially your most serious sins. Now, you already know this because you already confessed this. Because when I said, I forgive you all your sins, you said, Amen. And yet... It can be a battle to believe this. 
And it's especially hard to believe that Christ forgives you when your sins are sort of stubborn or they get lodged in your conscience. And there's a temptation that comes with these kinds of sins that tend to stick around. And you struggle to believe in Jesus' forgiveness. And you start to wonder whether Jesus could really forgive that sin. Maybe it's too big for Jesus, or it's too embarrassing. And so you carry this burden around, the weight of it getting heavier and heavier until you collapse under its crushing weight. Or maybe you know what it's like to have a sin planted in your conscience. Maybe it's painful at first when it's there, but over time you begin to nurture that sin and you find yourself wanting to keep it. The roots of that sin grow down deep and you start to develop a kind of callus around it. Your conscience becomes hardened and you find that the sin that used to bother you doesn't feel so painful anymore. When God's word comes to you, you find yourself walling off parts of your life where you don't want God's word to go. You don't want God's word to convict you of all your sin or to remove certain sins. You find yourself arguing around God's word in order to make it fit your misshapen heart and conscience. Sometimes you Out of the corner of your eye, you notice the sin is still there, but you try to become blind to it. You know it isn't good for you to be there, but then it seems like it's become so firmly united to you and to your person that if it were to be pulled out, it would tear your heart to pieces. Maybe you start to argue why your sin is actually good for you, why it would be unloving for Jesus to come and take that sin away. You fear what your life might become if you couldn't do that thing. Or maybe you hear the public absolution and you say in your heart, pastor doesn't know what I did, what I thought. If he really knew, he wouldn't speak those words so easily. And so you hear God's word And at least a part of you desires his absolution. And yet, perhaps, it still seems out of reach. And so, how powerful would it be for you if your pastor were to speak this absolution to you individually? After you've confessed your deepest, darkest sin, maybe that you've looked at pornography, or you've lost your temper, that you've called down God's wrath against someone you didn't like, or you've looked too long at someone who wasn't your spouse, the evil desires that have found their way into your heart, the wicked things you've plotted to do to your neighbor, or even all the ways you're filled with regret because you failed to do what is right. And so when you've spoken that, the name of that sin out loud, And you hear the pastors say, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. Jesus has taken your sin away. I forgive you. Jesus forgives you. How powerful 
would that be? Grasping this gift and holding fast to this comfort can seem elusive at times, especially when you hear it given to you in a room of 50-some other people. So you might find more comfort in hearing the absolution spoken to you individually, especially if you've just said out loud the name of your sin. And then you may find that such a word from God spoken to you one-on-one will find its way deep into your heart. So if there is something on your heart and mind like this, and it doesn't have to be some big-name sin, but if a sin is bothering you like this, then I'd suggest you make an appointment with me or, or Pastor Molstrom. And don't worry that your pastor might be busy. This is why the Lord called him here as your pastor. This is literally his job. In fact, Luther says that if you desire this gift, you should force your pastor to give it to you. So if your pastor says he's too busy to forgive your sins, then your pastor isn't doing what he should. And don't worry that your sin will be too scandalous or too big for Jesus. Don't worry that your pastor will be surprised at your sin or judge you for it. Because Jesus is a bigger savior than you are a sinner. And now there's, there's nothing that requires you to confess your sins to your pastor. And you are encouraged in the scriptures to confess your sins to each other, to other Christians. And if you're on the receiving of the end of this, if you hear your brother repent, by all means, forgive him in the name of Christ. But with the confession before the pastor, the Lord has also given another gift. For the pastor is required by God, and he has taken an oath to the same, that he will remit the sins of all those who repent, and he will never speak of those sins ever again. Nor will he even share who comes to him for forgiveness. This is the Lord's gift to you. And so finally, also in light of this, maybe a bit of pastoral advice. And so even if you've never had a sin root its way into your conscience and take up residence in your heart, I'm sure you can imagine it would be difficult to confess that sin out loud to God and especially before your pastor. So here's the advice. Not, not a requirement. We, we're not making this into a law, but something to consider. Make it a habit of confessing your little sins to your pastor so that when those big sins come along and Satan waves them in your face, when those sins worm their way into your heart and take root deep in your conscience, then you have already practiced what to do. And you know what the result will be. You already know what comfort the Lord has to give you and where to seek it. What Christ himself will do for you in love. How he will graciously and tenderly remove those sins from you, casting them as far as the east is from the west, burying them in the depths of the sea. How he will give you his word for healing and wholeness and grant you his peace. And this, dearly beloved, is what your Lord Jesus delivers because of his resurrection. 
Dear saints, Christ is risen. Yes, and amen, Jesus himself has been raised from the dead. And so as surely as Christ himself has died and is now out of the grave, never to die again, so surely are all of your sins forgiven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Peace of God, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen.